Listener Production. Anne Summer's resume does not lend itself to snappy podcast introductions. Summers is arguably one of, if not the greatest contributor to the feminist movement that Australia has produced. She is a writer, speaker and author who was editor of the American publication Ms Magazine in the 1980s and editor of The Good Weekend here in Australia in the 1990s. Between those two roles, Summers advised Prime Ministers Hawke and Keating on women's issues and went on to run the Office for the Status of Women in Canberra. Her authorship is prolific and Summers' book credits are in the double figures. Her awards outnumber them again. Her most recent work is about the link between family violence and women's poverty. That's right, family violence and women's poverty here in Australia in 2022. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, I'll be joined by Bron and we'll bring you The Weekend List where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with the inimitable Anne Summers. And just a heads up that this conversation does cover issues of domestic and family violence. Dr. Anne Summers, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thanks, Jamila. Great to be with you. It is such a pleasure to have you. And the reason I wanted to speak to you is because of some more recent work you've done in the area of family violence and poverty. But we're going to get to that in just a moment because we have a audience who would have heard your name many, many times in their lives, but perhaps don't have a full sense of the incredible career that you've had. So I want to give them a couple of little bits and pieces. Uh, I don't want to pretend that we can do a full snapshot in the short time we've got together. Can you tell me about you as a person coming out of school, looking into the world of work and thinking about what you wanted to do? Who were you at that point and what were you hoping for? Well, when I came out of school, first of all, I came out of a Catholic school. Secondly, I was in Adelaide. So two strikes against me uh, already. Um, <laughs> both very conservative town, very conservative institution. I from I was uh, you know the only girl in a family of six. So I had five brothers, and of course all the you know effort went for them because girls didn't have a future. And I had always hankered ever since about the age of eight to be a writer or a journalist, or preferably both. And uh, I you know I started writing stuff for the Women's Weekly and for any. In those days, the newspapers used to have children's pages. I used to write assiduously for them. So I spent my early years trying to figure out how I could get to do those things. And I, I soon realized it meant leaving Adelaide. Um, and I ditched the religion uh, even before that. And when I came to Sydney, I, you know, I combined studying, uh, was becoming a baby journalist initially as a, as a freelancer, but I eventually got a job in 1975 at the National Times. Uh, I wrote my first book, Down Tours and God's Police, uh, which took me four years. It was a massive effort, but that kind of put my name in lights because it, it said a lot of things about Australia and Australian women's place in what was and still is a very masculine society. And so ever since then, I've really toggled between writing uh, books, doing journalism, and I've made a few forays into government when opportunity has arisen. For example, I worked for Bob Hawke for a few years running the Office of the Status of Women at a time when there were some terrific reforms, including in childcare, 
uh, being brought in. It was a period a bit like now, you know, a new federal Labor government, very enthusiastic, wanting to change things, very pro-women. And then I also spent a bit over a year working for Paul Keating when he was Prime Minister in his office as an advisor on women in the early 90s, just before the 93 election. You know, I've done a few other things as well, but that that's kind of the trajectory of my lives of writing, journalism, advocacy, uh, and where I get the chance to sort of sit at the table or be in the room where it happens, I'm there and doing my best to make change happen. That is an outstanding summary. If I can take you back to 1975 when Damn Tours and God's Police was first published, talk to me about what life was like for women in that year. Set me, uh, help us sort of set the scene and draw a picture of what life was like for women. And particularly, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to draw a bit of a comparison on <laughs> how far or how not far we've come, particularly on the question of violence and poverty, which is the topic of our conversation today. But first, what was it like in, in 1975 for women? Well, there are so many different ways I could answer that. Mm. I'm kind of struggling a little bit. But I mean, one thing I should just mention up front is that when I wrote my book, Down Halls and Was Police, I mean, the word violence was hardly mentioned. I mean, the word sexual harassment hadn't been invented then. You know, I did talk about domestic violence, uh, but that, you know, those days it was called domestics. The women's movement was only just starting to grapple with how this actually was a feminist issue and something we had to get involved with. We knew we had to do something, but we weren't quite sure what the need was or what the solutions were. And, you know, in some ways we're still not, but we're much further along the track. But if you look at sort of society in general back then, I'll just give you two examples, which are probably, probably a little bit shocking, but will give you an idea. I applied for a job in 1970, I think it was early 70s anyway, when I first left uni for what they called specialist trainees. And so they just took you in and they gave you general training and then they decided, you know, where, where you'd go. And these jobs were advertised in the newspaper. I applied. What was extraordinary is that they published the salaries uh, in the paper for the job. And what really staggered me and actually enraged me was that the salary for a boy who had only finished high school was higher than a salary I as a female graduate would get. Mm. So that, I mean, that was just completely blatant. Back in those days, their jobs were all advertised in newspapers or pages and pages and pages of them, but they were divided into men and boys and women and girls. Wow. And they were very rare that the same jobs would appear in, you know, in both sections. So that's, that's one example of sort of, of work and money. The other example, perhaps a little more cultural one, is that you know, if you watch television at night and uh, at the end of the news, of course, then as now, you know, we'd get the weather, the weather would be read by a girl I use the word advisedly, in a bikini, and she would stand in front of the map and do all the things that the weather people still do. But this was a way of trivialising women mm. and weather, mm. you might say. So that was the kind of society it was, that, that, that women were not treated seriously in so many respects. We had, a, I think, either none or two or three women in federal parliament. Uh, we had no women in, you know, in all the places where we have women now, like in the High court, you know, in all the courts, in running companies, running publishing houses, uh, being editors of newspapers, all the kinds of things that, you know, we still think we're not far enough along. Uh, we hadn't even started back then. We were just realizing that the journey, you know, had to happen. Yeah. 
So if I fast forward to the 80s and then the early 90s where you're working in Canberra and you're working for the Hawke government and then the Keating government in both public policy and public servant roles but then in, in political roles as an, as an advisor, had the conversation started to shift to include violence or was violence as it happens in the home still something that was generally not talked about? Well, there are two things that were happening back then. I mean, we, we were talking about it a lot more. We were aware of it mm. um, and it was certainly coming through in, you know, back in the 80s we started setting up consultative and advisory bodies of women, you know, so, so to advise governments and certainly those bodies were get, sending the message loud and clear that, that domestic violence was an issue. The thing was that, that it was considered to be a state issue. If it was a crime, it was a state crime State police would be sent to deal with it. Uh, so it wasn't something that Canberra really worried about in the 80s. Uh, they sort of, you know, put out the odd video or something like that, but it wasn't part of an integral part of our policy making or our consciousness. Now, that changed uh, when I was working for Keating in 1992 when we did a major focus group of women all around Australia asking them what the important issues were for them and what was so startling about the results of these groups, and I sat in on it, I mean, behind the mirror, in every one of them to, to listen. And these were, were ordinary women. Uh, the criteria for being in the group is that you had to uh, be on a certain lower, you know, it wasn't rich women, it was uh, middle class and lower middle class women, it had to be receipt of family allowances or some other kind of family benefit. That there were three issues, every single one of them identified as being critical. One was childcare, one was women's health, and the other one, which absolutely staggered us, was domestic violence. And we realised then that this is something that the federal government could no longer ignore. So it was from that point on that we started thinking about, well, what can the federal government do? You know, we really didn't know. The first thing we did was just sound stupid and bureaucratic, but it was an intention of, of seriousness, if you like, an intention that we, we were hearing and that we wanted to do something, is we made it an agenda item at the Premier's conference. So I got the premiers talking about it. That's a bureaucratic device. Uh, but what it's saying is that this is something that's happening, guys. And what was interesting, Jamila, is that even though the Labor Party was doing this research, we soon realised uh, from the kinds of ads that the Libs were running, uh, because there was a state election on in New South Wales about the same time, the ads that they were running, they were getting exactly the same feedback. So this was a sort of a bipartisan understanding uh, there hasn't always been bipartisan action on it, but, I mean, all the sides of politics have known this um, as a result of their research, whatever feedback they might be getting from their electorates um, since the early 90s. And so it's it's been that amount of time, the last 25 to 30 years, where we have, to, have been trying to develop policies that will, first of all, identify the extent of how bad it is, uh, the complexity of how, you know, we used to talk about domestic, so that was, you know, a bloke getting drunk at the pub on a Friday night, coming home, beating up his wife. That was that was our idea of domestic violence. Now we have a much more um, sophisticated understanding. Now we know that violence it takes many forms. It can be emotional. You know, it can involve technological abuse. It can involve financial abuse. It can involve all kinds of behaviours that might not be very visible. It can also involve the most extraordinary physical brutality that that we can't even put our minds around, including, of course, murder. So, you know, this is a huge, huge subject. It affects a huge number of women. I mean, my report, which we'll talk about later, shows that 60% of women who are now single mothers 
experienced violence from their previous partner, and that is the reason they are single mothers. So the extent of the violence is far, far greater than any of our previous reports had, had, had indicated. Tell me about the report. Tell me about what you were trying to do and I suppose the gap that you were trying to fill, because increasingly this is something that governments are talking about. We had the first national plan to reduce violence against women and their children 10 years ago. Now we've just had an update. doesn't feel like we've made an awful lot of progress. What were you trying to do with the addition of this report into the conversation? Well, my report, um, which came out in July and uh, which, you know, people can get for free on the web and it's just very short and very easy to read, so I hope people have a look at it. I was concerned by the fact that there seemed to be a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about the nature of violence. We'd had this national plan. It was called the National Plan to Reduce Violence Against Women and Their Children, and it started in uh, under the Labor government, under the, the, the um, Rudd, Gillard government and it finished just um, recently. And initially it set targets and then they sort of forgot about that. So we had this sort of, you know, drifting along, we we hate violence, we're going to get rid of it, but no actual plan about how to do that. Uh, At the same time, we didn't really have very good data on what the problem was. We had all these kind of, I won't call them myths because they were based on reality, but we had a kind of a view of what violence was. For example, you know, every time we picked up a newspaper and read an article about domestic violence, it would say, well, one in six Australian women have suffered from partner violence. And I just knew that didn't sound right. So what I did is I decided to do a data study. What I went, I went to the Australian Bureau of Statistics and I asked them for help in delving into data that had never been published before to get a much deeper and I, I say nuanced, but it's actually not that nuanced. It's pretty, pretty brutal understanding of, first of all, the extent of the violence, like how many women in Australia, and it's not one in seven, it's 22% of all women who've ever had a partner. Wow. That's almost a quarter of all women who've ever had a partner have experienced violence from that partner. And as I mentioned before, 60% of all single mothers who once were married then left violent relationships and are now single mothers bringing up kids alone. These figures are horrendous. You know, 60% of women suffering violence. We also had the figure that there are currently, as we speak, 275,000 Australian women living with a current violent partner, women who haven't left, women who might want to leave but don't have the money or for the other reasons don't leave. They, you know, they're scared of disrupting their school kids' lives. They're worried about moving into poverty. And this is what my report tries to do is to look at the choice that women experiencing violence face, do they leave or do they stay? And we've never before quantified those choices and the consequences of them. And what I've found is the majority of women stay and they put up with the violence, uh, they hope it'll go away, they believe him when he says he loves them and he won't do it anymore. Hopefully that's true, but often we know, of course, it isn't. So the 275,000 women who stay a lot of them wanted to leave and would leave if they had the money, but they don't have it and there's something we could do about that tomorrow if the government wanted to. The other group that I looked at is that 185,700 single mothers who did leave, who took kids with them, often did, picked up everything and ran, took no assets, took, no, took nothing with them, and they are living with kids aged under the age of 18, trying to get along. 60% of them have got jobs, but the jobs are so insecure that it's not enough to support them and their kids, so they rely on government payments. And the government payment system towards single mothers is unbelievably cruel. 
once the youngest child turns eight, the women are kicked off the parenting payment and put onto the doll job seeker, which is a much, much lower payment. And so one of the things I'm campaigning for very strongly in the next budget is that all women, all single mothers who are bringing up children under the age of 16 be allowed to stay on the parenting payment, at least they get an extra $200 a fortnight more and buy, buy a few things with that. So that's it, it in a nutshell. Um, but it, what, what the report tries to do is to show in graphic, measurable detail, I mean, we can tell you the number of men who murdered the family pet, for example. We didn't know that before. We can tell you the number of men who will not let their wives or girlfriends, partners, be in touch with their families. So we've got the numbers now and we never had them before. And I think having that information, grim as it is, has got to be the basis for starting to work out the solutions. There's that famous saying in public policy of what doesn't get measured doesn't get managed, right? And now you've done the measuring. Do you have a view from the work that you've done around the balance of focus on prevention and response or support to people who've experienced violence and where the funding is going currently? Well, that's a huge question, obviously. Um, you know, obviously anything we can do to prevent, we should be doing, but I'm not sure that we know how to prevent it. There are so many forms of violence which occur in private settings in the home. The areas that are easier, I'm not saying easy, but easier to address and reduce and ultimately prevent are financial abuse. I know the banks are doing a lot of very interesting work on that. Generally speaking, this kind of abuse is not life-threatening, but it can be very psychologically and traumatizing. So, I mean, we, we, and, it, and it's very, very wearing if, you, if you're being subjected to it. So I think this is something that we should be working on simultaneously with other things. But And I know the banks are, and I think more effort should be put into that. So if that's one area of violence we could reduce pretty easily, that would be good. Now, when it comes to stopping the private behaviour inside people's homes, that is, of course, much more difficult. I think, judging from my findings, the most immediate thing that a government can do is if a woman is suffering violence and wants to leave, and the thing that's stopping her is that she has no money or nowhere to go, give her the bloody money. And at the moment we say, okay, well, here's $4,000 and it's in vouchers, you know, and you have to use the vouchers that approve shops and you have to buy approved things. That is not the way to do this. When you think of the amount of money it costs to police violence, the amount of money we spend fixing women's broken bodies, dealing with miscarriages, all of the shocking things that happen as a result of violence, I think if you were to give a woman say $10,000, no strings attached, somebody to help us attached to a refuge, an expert caseworker, and say, we are going to help you out of this in a realistic way, I think that would reduce violence by maybe 30,000 cases a year. Now, that's maybe a drop in the ocean, but it's better than nothing, and it's better than we've done in the past 10 years. So, you know, I think there's going to be lots of different types of solutions, and I would be very interested in working on a kind of a typology of the types of violence and how we can address each of them, because I think we need different solutions for different types of problems. The other thing we need to do, and this is something that I'm working on in my next project, is we need to have a much deeper understanding than we currently have of the men, the perpetrators, who they are, why they do this, what's driving them, what will stop them, how do we deal with it? I mean, it's a bit of a kind of 
subject that no one wants to talk about, partly because we don't know how to, uh, but I think there's a growing interest now in saying, okay, you can't solve violence against women if you leave out one side of the equation and you don't deal with the, the perpetrators. So that's also another area for uh, study and investigation, and I'm looking forward to what we learn from that. Dr. Summers, you are truly prolific and we have touched on, you know, the tiniest grain of sand on the beach of the work that you have done and still do. I think you're going to have to come back. Thanks, Jamila. It's been great talking to you. That's it for my conversation with Anne Summers. The publication we were talking about is called The Choice, Violence or Poverty. It was published online only in July this year. You can go to violenceorpoverty.com if you would like to download it. If you were listening to that episode and you're someone who has experienced sexual assault or family and domestic violence, you can call the 1800 Respect Counselling line at any time. It's 24 hours. The number is 1800 Respect, which is 1800 737 732. You can also get support through Relationships Australia, who are at relationships.org.au. And of course, if you are in any immediate danger, please call the police on triple zero. For the rest of you, hang around, please. The Weekend List is on its way. It is Weekend List time. Bron is here. We are inching our way, Bron, inching our way towards the Christmas and the festive season more generally. It feels like this year has gone so, so fast and yet I am so, so tired. Have you got something that I can do or watch or see that won't take a lot of effort. I need something with not a lot of effort. This year has flown by. I do. My first one is Wednesday on Netflix. It's a coming of age sort of supernatural dark comedy television series, which is based around the character from the Adams family, Wednesday Adams. It's a new recreation of it. They're saying it's from the imagination of Tim Burton. So it's got all his classic style, you know, the quirky and dark characters. Um, it's about Wednesday starting at this new school called Nevermore. And I guess the plot is about her trying to solve a local murder mystery. It's fun. It's nostalgic. It's probably for teens, but I am loving it. And it's got Jenny Ortega as the main character and she is incredible. And I'm sure she'll snag a few Emmy noms for this because she's outstanding in it. It's amazing. Are you feeling okay? You look a little pale. Please excuse Wednesday. She's allergic to color. Oh, wow. What happens to you? I break out into hives and then the flesh peels off my bones. Uh, You have totally sold that one. And actually, I've seen a few of the previews and bits and pieces around and I am 100% signing up. Uh, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction, everyone. I'm going to go very highbrow for you before I go very lowbrow. Going highbrow, there is a new quarterly essay that has been released. It is by Catherine Murphy, journalist at The Guardian, and it is called Lone Wolf, Albanese and the New Politics. And like many quarterly essays, it really is part profile and portrait and part current political analysis, this time with a focus on our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. And there was so much in this that I didn't know. I found some of what Catherine Murphy has drawn together about the way that Albanese was raised and his experiences in childhood and having to be really self-sufficient as a kid of a single parent who was very ill, how that has 
sort of taught him to be an operator who operates alone, like has good friends and listens to people and has those networks, but is someone very comfortable with his own company and ultimately really only relies on himself. It combines interviews with some really key people from Penny Wong to Jim Chalmers to Katie Gallagher. And I found it incredibly insightful. And if you, like so many political commentators, are suspecting that Albanese as Prime Minister might be here for a while, not for a short time, then he's going to make a huge mark on this country and it's worth finding out a bit about him. Well, that sounds interesting. My next one is also a bit out of left field, but it is summertime now where in early December, it's time to just get any brand of sunscreen, get it on your face, get it on your body if you're out and about, you know, Obviously, we all know about the damage the sun can do for skin cancers and other things like that, but it also helps with anti-aging. So this is just a PSA, get sunscreen on your body. It is time to slip, slop and slap. That is a superstar recommendation because I am one of those terrible people that does forget sunscreen. I'm actually one of those parents who goes to the beach and is so focused on getting the sunscreen on my kid that I forget to put the sunscreen on myself. Uh, That is not an option here in this country and appreciate the very timely reminder, Bron, because there's actually some sun in the sky in Melbourne today. I am going to recommend uh, something delicious, folks. One of my favourite things about this time of year is the food. In fact, it is my favourite thing about this time of the year. Oh, absolutely. Love family getting together, love catching up with friends, love Santa, love the presents. I love the food. It's all about the food. And for me, one of my joys is baking and I like making gingerbread houses at this time of year. I have a lot of mates who this is not something they do regularly. They're not bakers, but at Christmas time, they suddenly go, yeah, I'm going to give a gingerbread house a go. And they don't realize it's really, really hard. So I am here to recommend what I believe is the best gingerbread recipe if you're going to build things out of it. And it's from Sally's Baking Addiction, which is a free website. Uh, It's literally sallysbakingaddiction.com. And if you search gingerbread house, it'll take you to her recipe. And not only does it talk you through how to make really delicious gingerbread uh, and really solid gingerbread that'll be able to hold up a house, but it also includes decorations tips and like a template and really detailed instructions, which I promise you, you are going to need. Gingerbread house seems simple, seems good in theory. And when you actually do it, it's very easy to start screaming at people, throwing things at the ceiling and be covered in burn marks on your fingers from the gingerbread and also icing literally everywhere in places you don't want icing to be. Folks, that's it for today's weekend briefing. Thank you so much for being with us. We really enjoy your company. You can find us in the listener app. If you download that now, you can click uh, follow on the briefing and we'll be in your feed six days a week. Otherwise, you can catch us wherever you get your podcasts and you can follow us, subscribe, rate, all the good things while you are there. Tom, Tilly and the team will be back bright and early on Monday morning. They will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. We'll catch you soon. Listener.